Gil Scott Heron, that's his second appearance now on You, Me, Us Now. First time was The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And uh, Gil Scott Heron was an amazing poet who became a singer and musician. And so many of the things he says still still ring true. I picked this song. Um, by the way, this is Mike McGinn, used to be mayor of Seattle. Now I just interview interesting people on the radio and try to bring out their stories. And the reason I picked out this song was because today's guest is Ardell Shaw. Ardell served time in prison, and he's now out of prison working with other people who are coming out of prison. Uh, you know, he's trying to help them get get housing, get a job, get a life, reintegrate into the community. And I picked this song because I visited the Black Prisoners Caucus at Monroe, and I sat in a circle with them as they went around the room and spoke about their hopes, their dreams, their fears. I know that's a cliche, but they felt it so strongly. And one of the things that came out of that was, when you're in prison, really all they had was each other. They didn't have other people. There was no Superman to come get them. And that song just, just stuck with me. So let me back up just a little bit. I, I didn't mean to go so quickly to that, but let me back up just a little bit. As mayor of Seattle, you have to work and, and deal with every community in the city. You have to sit down with people, figure out what their issues are, and work with them. And my personal story was that I was a neighborhood and environmental advocate, and I'd been doing that for years. And when I ran for mayor, it meant I had to get out of my, my community. And I, I cared about racism. I cared about mass incarceration, but it was not something that ever touched me in my personal life in any meaningful way. It was some, something of a more abstract topic for a typical Seattle liberal. And one day I was down in, uh, while I was running for office, we had a forum that was held at Seattle Vocational Institute, which is a job training place. My opponent didn't make it to that one, so I'm up in front of the room all alone. And I remember we got a lot of questions about a lot of things. And at a certain point, a woman stood up and she said to me, um, very emotionally, she said, I've been to jail. I've done my time. I'm out. And I can't get a job. I can't get a job. What are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for me? And it weighs on you when you get a question like that. And, and my answers weren't cutting it with the crowd. Oh, we're going to work on job training. We're going to work on this. We're going to work on that. And the reason they weren't cutting it is because they'd seen people come to these forums for years and years and make the same same promises. So on the fast forward a couple of years, we'd had a horrible um, set of murders and shootings in the city. I went to all of the murder sites with our chief of police and heard the stories. And uh, we reached out to the community to ask people what we should do. And one group we spoke to was the black pastors. And what they said to me was, uh, Mayor, we know the people, we know the men coming out of prison who want to make a life for themselves, but they need help, not just services, not just job training. They need a community that will support them. 
and we can help do that. So we launched a program called Career Bridge at that time, which combined the the community members, in this case the black pastors and the churches, with the service providers and the social service providers and the job trainers. And that's Career Bridge. And it's launched and it's working. And my guests today, Ardell, works for the program. So Sorry for the long, long wind up here, Ardell, but this is one I've been feeling. So uh, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. You work for CareerBridge now. Tell me what you do for CareerBridge. What I do for CareerBridge is I am the administrative assistant. And what that is, is I do uh, most of the recruiting. So I go out into the community. I find young men and women who have been incarcerated or who have just got on out of prison and are having a hard time finding a job, finding a place to stay, or, you know, just can't get ahead because of, uh, you know, different things that are going on in their life, you know, dealing with the transition. And uh, what we do is we let them know we have a program to where we're going to help them, you know, acquire the job skills that they need. Tell me about, so what are the challenges that the folks that you're recruiting face? Confidence. You know, they don't believe that they're going to get a fair shake because they have a criminal uh, background. A lot of people, uh, they go into the interview or they go into the job thinking that they're not going to get it, but they have to get a job in order to survive or to stay out of prison. How do you give them confidence? What do you do? You let them know, well, first and foremost, you know, you, they're looking at somebody that they can relate to because uh, myself and most of the people who uh, run Career Bridge Program have formerly been incarcerated. So uh, I, I was thinking about that. When I went to the, when I went to the visit Monroe, I remember walking in the room and uh, shaking hands with everybody. There were about 30 or 40 people in the room. And I want to say that every one of them gave me an awesome uh, handshake and look in the eyes. And I remember by about the fifth or sixth one, I was like, oh, people have been working on this. Right. Well, a lot of the guys, too, you know, they know you're the mayor, so they're just, you know, happy to see you. But, you know, they have, again, this is where Career Bridge was started was, you know, in, in Monroe at the BPC. So, you know, uh, it's a lot of intelligent guys on up there. Well, I figured that out. The other thing that I remember them telling me was uh, one of them recited the uh, five A's of the program. Right. Let me see if I can still get them right because they, they, they stuck with me. Okay. Uh, one was attitude. Right. Uh, second was attendance. Okay. Uh, third was ability. Right. Uh, fourth was adaptability. And five was accountability. Hey, you got it. Yeah, I remember thinking those were pretty good. Uh, that was pretty good advice for a mayor, too. <laughs> and beat that. <laughs> no, you can't. No, because I was pretty good at, at mayor. I was really good at uh, attendance, but I, I think I was working on the other four at the hey, time. You know, One out of five. One of the things I want to talk to you about, and we're going to get back to the challenges that, that folks released from prison face when they come back to the community. But I want to hear your story. Where'd you grow up? I grew up here in Seattle uh, in the Central District. And where'd you go to school? Uh, I went to school. I went to several schools. I went to TT Minor, Asa Mercer, uh, Rainier Beach. Um, did you finish Rainier Beach? I didn't finish Rainier Beach. I made it all the way to the 10th grade. What happened? Uh, at that time, I was going through a lot of family issues, uh, you know, not having a father in the household, uh, a lot of anger towards my mother. And uh, at that time, I, I just started hanging out with the wrong people and hanging out on the streets and doing petty crimes. When we were talking earlier, you said you got into the cycle. Tell me what the cycle is. Vicious cycle is uh, what plagues myself and many African Americans. Is uh, first of all, growing up in a society that doesn't provide opportunities for African Americans, and uh, a lot of the times, you know, the family members pay. You know, the uh, children, uh, you know, we're affected by what our parents are going through. Uh, you know, not having a job, uh, drug abuse, or you know, not just being there. 
What was happening in your family? Uh, in my family at the time, my mother was strung out in heroin, so I was raised by my grandmother. So that's the front end of the cycle. What comes next in the cycle? Well, what comes next is abandonment issues, uh, anger, and the mis- you know that anger has to you know come out some way. And for me, it was you know uh, I found myself where I was hanging out with guys who were similarly situated, who come from broken homes, who you know mothers were out using drugs, and you know just didn't have no structure, you know didn't have you know a life, didn't have hope, you know on welfare. And uh, for me, that meant you know hanging out on the streets and you know getting in you know to trouble. What kind of trouble did you get into? Uh, well, as a kid, you know uh, vandalism. Petty uh, shoplifting, stuff like that. Did that land you uh, into trouble with the police or the law at the time? Uh, yeah, on a regular basis. I was found myself going back and forth to the juvenile system and uh, from there to foster homes. And that cycle just continued and continued until I hit 18. What happened then? Well, uh, at 18, you know, the unresolved emotions kind of, you know, kept me out on the streets because, you know, for me, that was a place to where, I didn't have to deal with, you know, what was going on at home or, you know, I f- had a sense of, you know, being grown. So uh, from hanging out on the streets, you know, that led to me committing more crimes, you know, selling drugs. And uh, from there, it was like, you know, it had developed into identity. You know, that kind of led to me going to prison for selling drugs. When, how old were you when you went to prison? Uh, the first time I went to prison, I was 18 years old. Wow. And how long did you go for? Uh, two years. And then you... Got out of jail, and what happened next? Well, yeah, I, I got out of jail and at a young age, at 21. And uh, at the time, you know, a number of issues I got dealt with. They just were there, you know, kind of in a place, just in regression. I got out of prison. I had all the intentions of, you know, getting my life together, getting a job, and, you know, trying to raise a family. But that didn't play out well. You know, I tried for maybe, you know, two weeks to get a job. I had a probation officer who was on my back, you know, wanted me to come in once a week take UAs and just, you know, really harassing me. And, you know, what's uh, a UA? A urine analysis. Your analysis. Yeah. So you're, so you're out a couple of weeks, you're getting hassled. What happens next? Uh, it was just, you know, from, I guess from being turned down for interviews or already knowing from, uh, experience that, you know, me having a criminal background that that was going to probably prevent the employer from hiring me. So that just kind of, or I, you know, not, not being, uh, content with the type of job that was available for me. Right, it wasn't good enough. Right, no dishwashing, janitorial work, you know, the typical work. Right, so what happened next? What happened next was I got into uh, selling drugs and it looked like a way for me to, you know, kind of define my manhood and and make money at the same time. You got arrested again though, didn't you? I did. What happened then? Uh, Same thing. This was probably two, two years later and I ended up going back to prison. For how long? Well, they had sentenced me to 57 months, and uh, through the Court of Appeals, I only end up doing like maybe a year and a half. So, again, you got out of jail then? I did. What happened then? Uh, the same story. You know, I uh, didn't do any work in prison to uh, work on changing myself. At the time, you know, really wasn't nothing available, but to me, it was just easy just to fall back in- into doing what I knew how to do. So, how many times did you end up going to jail? I've been to prison three times. Three times. Yeah. So the next time you went to jail. The next time I went to jail. Uh, and what was the charge? The charge was for selling drugs also. Uh, how long did you serve then? That time I served uh, approximately 14 years in prison. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's a long time. Very. Something happened in that 14 years, I tell you. It did. What happened? 
for me, uh, I realized I was wasting my life. But bigger than that, I had to do kind of like a, a inventory of why I kept coming to prison. You know, how come I couldn't uh, stop doing the things that led to me coming to prison? So once I realized, um, you know, what those issues were, a lot of childhood trauma, and once I started figuring on out that I had misplaced anger and stuff like that, it was time to, you know, really say, okay, well, is this how I want to spend the rest of my life, or do I want to start making a change? So what did you do to make a change? I started forgiving the people that I was angry at, you know, beginning with my mother. Uh, I also start taking an honest look and figuring on out that I didn't know what it meant at the time to be a man, nor did I uh, understand why I kept having negative thoughts, you know, that, you know, to where I wanted to go out and commit crimes and keep that lifestyle going. So it, it feels to me like it starts in your own head, right? Taking accountability for yourself. Right. Taking account of what you'd done. Right. Um, what what other things did you do to try to turn things around? Well, once you figure that out, then you have to be honest. And uh, because a lot of people can figure out what's wrong, but are they going to be honest enough to say, okay, well, this is what's wrong now. I need help to change it. The first step was I was tired. Uh, the first, I just was tired. I was tired of, I looked and I seen that I spent over half my life either in uh, the juvenile system or in the Department of Corrections. And uh, I missed out on basically all of my 30s. And I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. It's easy to look around prison and see people in there who are old and, you know, uh, who had spent, you know, most of their life in prison or who aren't getting out. And for me, that wasn't the picture that, that it wasn't how I, I seen myself. You got involved with the Black Prisoners Caucus at some point. I did. I did. Um, what is the Black Prisoners Caucus? The Black Prisoners Caucus is an organization that was started in 1972 by uh, a group of black men in prison who, uh, you know, basically like myself, you know, were tired of being tired and understood that there was a lot of uh, things that went into effect to where they landed in prison. The only way for them to address these issues and to make a change to stop the uh, cycle that I talked about, that vicious cycle, was for them to you know, come together and start an organization that focuses on accountability, focuses on, on men you know, changing their lives around, educating themselves, but also changing the system, the system they have in there in the first place, and addressing those institutions that play a part at a young age of African-Americans coming to prison. So what, what did the pris Black Prisoners Caucus organize around? What were the types of things they worked on? Social justice, prison reform, education, you name it. Even just winning the right to have meetings, I understand. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was a battle by itself. What do you know about that battle? Well, I just know that anytime you try to organize in prison, uh, the uh, institution, you know, they do, do everything in the powers to shut that down because they want to maintain that structure, maintain that uh, order. And again, you know, it's a prison, so they don't want people organizing up in there and trying to better their situation and get out of prison. You know. So how often did the Black Prisoners Caucus meet? Well, they, you know, uh, on every given chance, but mainly on the weekends. But we would do, you know, whatever it took for us to organize. If that meant, you know, organizing out on the yard or organizing in the chow hall or, you know, walking on the way to school, wherever, you know, uh, organizing meant, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. You know, you do this. Every Everybody had a job to do. You know, one of the things I do in this show is talk to people that are organizers. Right. And it turns out everybody knows how to organize. Um, but lots of people don't think they can. Right. Or they think the obstacles are too big to overcome. 
So, you know, if Ardell and his friends are organizing in prison, you can organize out there, folks. Right. I just feel like, sorry, I had to put in a little plug for organizing there, <laughs> Ardell. <laughs> no, I was really impressed by that. I was really impressed by that, the history yeah. of the Black Prisoners Caucus and the work they were doing to, to organize on behalf of each other. The meeting I went to, uh, in addition to the, the quality of the handshakes, the, the going around the room was really fascinating because everybody took their time. And I, I appreciated doing that because I saw a lot of strength there in people, right? right, that they were finding strength in each other. But I remember one young man spoke about um, what he wanted to do. But at some point, I saw him kind of break down a little bit as he reached the end of his talk. And I, I realized that it was kind of the fear of what would confront him when he got out was was reaching out yeah that's a major obstacle uh, you know transition and that whole thought process that goes along with it it scares men you know and there's a lot of anxiety there's a lot of fear about you know coming on out and being uh placed back in an environment to where you know from experience that it's not going to accept you especially now that you have a felon on, on your record yeah because there are already obstacles right 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 yeah so i want to turn back to to CareerBridge and the type of things that CareerBridge does. Because the thing that struck me, and I put this into the intro, was it wasn't just about let's give somebody job training right. or let's give somebody you know, a check to help them buy food or housing. It was actually about trying to create a, a sense of community. Right. Tell me about that. Well, we understand that a major part of somebody coming out of prison, in order for it to be successful, there has to be a good network in place. And for that to happen, you know, your net has to be tight in order for it to work. And that involves having community support, you know, not just sponsors and mentors, but just a whole community as a whole. You know, there's a saying that it takes a, a village to raise a child. Well, we hold that true. You know, it takes a whole community to help somebody when they're coming out of prison. So how does, how does CareerBridge work to create that community? Well, what we do is we get involved and we let people know that, you know, this is what we're doing. And we understand there's a lot of obstacles and, a lot of barriers in place. And we understand that, no, we can't do it by ourselves, but with the community's help, we're more able to do that. So we get involved with the community. We hold weekly meetings with the community. We talk about issues that are affecting all of us, not just the men who are coming on out of prison, but also the families and the children. And figure out ways how we can come together and try to address these issues so we can keep the family whole, so the family is intact. So when the young man or the young woman come out of prison, we're able better to serve that uh, person. I've come to a couple of the meetings and, and enjoyed them. Right. And that was another insight for me when we were in the correctional facility. I remember when we went around the circle, we came around to Mary Flowers, who works for the city. Yes. Has really been a heart and soul of a lot of this for years. And when it came to her and she spoke, she talked about how devastating it was to the community to have all the men in jail. And I, it hadn't occurred occurred to me until I heard her state it so emotionally that it wasn't just about uh, the number of men that were imprisoned. It was, you know, you're talking, I don't even have the data, but you're talking 20, 30% of the men from mm -hmm. a community being sent off to jail. Just, just crazy. And there wasn't a question in there, Ardell. I, just, right. I guess I was just talking. Well, no, you mentioned Mary Flower's name. I just was getting kind of emotional because uh, she's a phenomenal woman and, and I truly feel if we had 10 Mary Flowers, uh, there wouldn't be incarceration problem up here in Washington State. No, Mary is amazing. Yes. Mary is amazing. And, you know, I'd seen Mary 
in any number of meetings because she worked in, in the department, you know, everybody defers to the next person up the chain when you're in the office with the mayor. So Mary hadn't spoken that much in any of those meetings. Uh, but then when we went around the table and I heard from her, and then I inquired of my staff, who is this person and what does she do? She's been working this issue for really decades. Yes, she has. It was a funny, there's another part of the story too. At the beginning of the story, I talked about what we did in government to form career bridge, listening to people and coming up with ideas and, and taking ideas from other people. But one day when I was down at the weekly meeting, I was speaking with Mary, was sharing this story with her. And the point she made to me was, well, this is what the Black Prisoners Caucus has been working on for years. And what I came to realize after speaking to her was that they had been throwing the idea out. Right. They had been throwing the seeds upon the ground and hoping somebody would tend it so it would you know, take root and grow. That also speaks to the issue of the power of organizing. Most definitely. And uh, you know, who better knows transition or how to stay out of prison than people who have been through the system? So right. I think, yeah. So uh, as Mary said, yes, you know, uh, Career Bridge started inside, you know, inside prison. Guys who, you know, wanted to change the circumstances, you know, put together ideas and, you know, uh, you know took a candid look at themselves and, and figured out, okay, well, this has to be a part of any successful program. You have to deal with life skills. You have to deal with certain things besides just getting men jobs. From there, it was handed off to the community through Mary Flowers and others. Then we have Career Bridge. That's where Career Bridge. Career started from the community, basically, in you know Janet Preston's house in the living room. Yeah, I, I come back to the uh, to the song we started with with Gil Scott Heron, right? Yeah, we have each other. That's right. Ain't no such thing as a Superman. No, you can't do it by yourself. One of the I want to talk about this. One of the issues is a lot of people look to jobs as being the metric of success for a program. How many jobs? How many of the people coming out get jobs? And Let's get some data on that. What is the data on the success of the program right now? It's in the high, high 90s. High 90s? High 90s. 90% of the people that go through the Career Bridge training program and community support program end up with, with a job. Yes. Well, that's an amazing metric. Is that the only metric we should be, we, we should be using? No, no. There's more to it than uh, just job placement. What else, what else should we be looking at? Uh, we're looking at how guys give back to the community. You know, it has to be looked at because once somebody is able to uh, get stable, then it's up to the men to you know, give back to the community, help somebody else, tell somebody else about the program. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is build up families that have been broken down. And one way to do that is to help the men who are coming back on out, you know, build them on up so they don't have to keep going through that. Uh, Go through the vicious cycle again. Yeah, of recidivism. Yeah, right. Yeah, because recidiv recidivism rates are very high. Right nationwide for people returning yeah. from jail. My own personal opinion, I think a systematic is, you know, by design. It's by design from the minute, you know, guys step out of prison, they're uh, put back in an environment that's hostile to them. What do you mean when you say it's by design? It's by design. I mean, uh, again, you know, you look around, the reason there isn't, well, let me say. Uh, Just go there, man. Just say, what, say what's on your mind, Ardell. Jobs aren't being offered uh, to African-Americans as, you know, as much as they are to, you know, their counterparts. You know, it's hard for people of color to, you know, get work. And if they do, then it's not enough work to where they can support their families. Yeah. So when you, when you add stigma of being a, fella, a felon to the structural inequity, structural right. racism, right. let's put a word to it, of then, society. Right. 
right? And then if you are given a job, it's the job that nobody else wants to do. You know, the dishwashers, the janitors, and, you know, not saying that they're bad jobs, but this is the jobs that are thrown at uh, African-Americans, you know, labor positions, you know. Yeah. Service positions. Yeah. What do you think is the the thing that makes CareerBridge work in terms of other job training programs that preceded it? Uh, the life skills and also, uh, well, as a whole, you know, the community. The community plays a major part in it, but also part of the training that goes into CareerBridge is letting men know their vices and values, letting them know, you know, that they need to change their thinking. And that's, you know, understanding, okay, well, our life skills that we've been accustomed to have to change. And so that takes a lot of work along with, you know, you dressing up the outside and getting presentable for a job. You also have to take care of, of the inside. So that means, you know, uh, now they have to learn job etiquette. They have to learn uh, certain, you know, punctuality, the five A's that you mentioned. Right. A lot of people don't know the five A's. I'm glad punctuality wasn't on that list because hey. I struggle with that one. Yes, man. yes. But I guess that's part of attendance yeah. when you get right down to it. And, you know, just changing their view on them being able to, you know, make a living and take care of themselves. Just get an opportunity. Man, a lot of men just want opportunities. So how long have you been out of jail now? I've been out of jail coming up on two years. Coming up on two years. Yes. And you've been working in the program? I have. Yes. All that time? Uh, yeah, for the majority of it, yes. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel awesome. It's, you know, I was told a long time ago by uh, a man named Willie Williams, who was also a uh, sponsor for the Black Prisoners Caucus. And he came inside along with Mary Flowers and uh, Janet Preston and Miss Saranga, Marsha Tateranga. And they really let us know from the heart that, you know, we're needed in the community. When you've never been, I guess, wanted or, you know, accepted by somebody, and then somebody tells you that you're needed in the community, you know, you try to, you know, you want to process that and figure out what that looks like, you know, and why am I, I need it? You know, why me? How come it can't be somebody else? And every week, you know, they will come back inside, let us know that when we get on out, you know, we're needed in the community, you know, to build up the same communities that we once tore down. And I guess just from seeing uh, them come up week after week on their days off, come up inside the prison on a volunteer basis and, you know, show the love, spend hours with us, and start resonating. And start, you know, uh, seeds were, you know, planted like on, you know, it start, you know, the weeds that were once there were starting to get fertile. So, Well, that's amazing because what we're talking about here is not redemption but contribution. Yes. Which is a, a bigger a bigger mission than saving oneself. It's actually contributing to the community. Right. So I understand that as part of your job, you also go back into the prison. How does that make you feel? Uh. It makes me feel excellent, and it feels uh, kind of strange going inside the prison through the front door instead of through the side gate, you no know, handcuffed and on a bus in a pumpkin suit. I mean, I'm actually have the opportunity to go in through the front door and know that I'll be leaving, you know, uh, in a couple hours. And what do you do with the men? I, well, I go in the men, and I go in and I fellowship with the men. I go in and. I let them know how I'm doing on the streets, you know, out in society. And I let them know that, you know, uh, I'm out here fighting for them. I'm out here addressing the issues that affect them and also myself, you know, legal financial obligations, you know, ban the box on job applications. I let them know that, you know, I'm out here and I'm fighting for them day in, day out. I have to say I went through the front door, too, for my visit and uh, still doesn't feel that good walking in there. No, 
No, not at all. You know, my first time back into prison, I was real nervous, and uh, I actually seen that I was sweating, and, you know, uh, it was a different experience. But now I look forward to it. I really look forward to going up in there, and it's uh, very inspirational for those guys because the guys that I'm going into prison to see, I did time with these guys, you know, and now I'm out. And uh, I think that's my biggest uh, encouragement is hearing words of praise for them. You know, you know, they see me on TV up on Olympia, you know, speaking on different issues, or, you know, they hear about how I'm doing out in you know, society because a lot of – we always hear about the guys who are doing bad, but, you know, uh, seldom do you hear about the guys who are doing good. So when they hear about it, you know, uh, it makes them happy, and they know the change is possible. We'll send them this podcast, Ardell. Hey, sounds good. I love you guys. So there's something else I want to talk about in this show. I'm just going to go there. Okay. I, uh, so in 2013, the last budget I submitted to the city council, it, it expanded the program. We had kind of cobbled together money from existing sources and just launched it. And we were getting really good anecdotal feedback. So what we did was we then expand, proposed expanding it to um, $800,000 from like $210,000. And the city council had uh, other higher priorities for the money. And they only uh, expanded it to four hundred thousand and cut the other four hundred thousand. And uh, the council president Tim Burgess said we had to study it to prove whether it would work. Now, of course, we we thought it was working, and council president Burgess was uh, said we needed data though, more data. Now, Ardell here can't talk about it. He's a contractor for a contractor for the city. He's an employee of a contractor for the city. But I can talk about it. I'm a former mayor. I can talk about whatever I want now. That really bothered me because we needed the money. And by the way, they did the study. And what the study showed is just what Ardell was telling you, which is that the program is working. Right. And if we'd had more money, it would have worked for more people. And I, I was thinking about that decision by Council Member Burgess and the council to cut that money. I was kind of thinking, well, what would they have done on the decks of the Titanic? Somebody said, lower the lifeboats. And they would have said, I'm sorry, we need a study of the rope and pulley system first before we drop that <laughs> lifeboat. You know, we are dealing with an emergency situation right, here right. in the city. So, uh, by the way, city councils considering the budget again, uh, the proposal that's come down from the executive branch uh, did not expand it. Wow. But I've been pushing on the, uh, just so you know, I'm still out there organizing too. I've been pushing on council members and, uh, and candidates to make Career Bridge an issue. Appreciate that. And I, I think part of the reason is because when you look at the political system, People organize to influence legislation, and um, released felons are not necessarily the strongest electoral constituency right. yet. So maybe that's the next step for Career Bridge is uh, you can go get some people to start organizing on the on the side for politics next. Right. Well, it's a uh, society issue because, again, you know, all these same people who are sent to prison, they all have release dates, and every year, you know, hundreds if not thousands are getting on out. So any politician or just anybody, period. You know, we need to know that it's not strictly a uh, incarceration issue or a felon issue. It's everybody issue because, again, you know, this creates, you know, we have to be, we have to answer certain questions. You know, if we don't make sure that people are providing jobs for these people, then we're putting this, the uh, community, you know, at risk, you know, and uh, the public. Well, it is a community issue. And I it think is. that's that was, I think, why that's what was so important to me when Mary Flowers spoke up, right? And why it was so important. I said I went to every 
murder site in the city at the time we were seeing a spike in murders right. with uh, um, Deputy Chief Pugil. And he would describe to me the details. And all very often it was, um, it was a drug deal gone wrong. And not a drug deal of somebody buying for their personal consumption. It was a transaction between people. And somebody would try to rip somebody else off. A gun would come out. And they were oftentimes, uh, the victims had had criminal records. Right. They were back in the life. And that was kind of what exposed that to me, that the entire community now is dealing with the, the ramifications of, of the choices that we'd made as a society. Another person that was influential to me on this was our county prosecutor, Dan Satterberg. And he had put together a report and begun working on this issue. And he used a line that I've stolen and use all the time. We've developed mass systems for the arrest, prosecution, and incarceration of young men, particularly men of color. Now we need to figure out mass systems for returning people to our community. Right. So you look at that $400,000 program to deal with returning felons and take a look at the millions and millions we spend on prisons, police officers, court system, the right. prosecutors. And I was talking about doubling it, but right. we, need to, we need to dramatically expand it if we're going to actually be true to that statement. We do. We do. And when you look at it, even $800,000 doesn't even begin to address the issue because, again, to lower the rates of recidivism, we have to take a look at you know, what needs to be done. And what needs to be done is we need to invest in educating you know, individuals before they come out of prison, you know, making sure that you know, they can get a skill, a trade, or you know, to where they can really learn some skills that they can you know, make a decent wage when they get on out. And that takes money. So one of the things uh, about this show, and one of the reasons I decided to do a podcast in this way, is that I wanted to bring out voices of people who don't necessarily have a voice. And I was trying to do something a little different in this show, too, which was take you on, on my journey of learning about this right. and getting steeped in it. And it's, it's now something I, I care deeply about because that's what happens when you, when you learn is you just don't have a choice. So I hope, people are, I hope people are taking something away from this. The other reason it's personal for me is I remember when I left Monroe that day, uh, the men said to me, they just had one request for me. What was that? And don't forget about us. That's a pretty powerful request. Yeah. You know, and I promised I wouldn't. So really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about this with me. I really hope that we can get this show around a little bit and people in other parts of the country can take a look at what this program is and why it's succeeding. And I hope some of our listeners in Seattle maybe just got a little bit closer to the problem and they can feel strongly about it too because it, it's not about... Uh, some subset about, of our community. It's about our community. Right. It's about all of us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I get to pick a song at the front end, okay. and you get to pick a song at the back end and tell me why you picked it. So tell me what song you picked and why you picked it. Uh, for me, I picked Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror. Why'd you pick it? In order for you to help change you know, the community, help change the system that keeps you know, swallowing black man back into it, you have to fix yourself. The song talks about in order to make a change, you have to take a look at yourself and make a change. And in the song, Michael Jackson talks about he's been a victim of, you know, a lot of things. As we know, you know, the abuse, you know, a lot of different things, you know, in his family growing up how he did. And you know, I could see the common thread of, you know, we all go through troubled childhoods. You know, we all go through that. But 
it comes a time when you have to say, okay, well, in spite of, you know, my obstacles, it's time for me to take accountability and, you know, get the help, you know, get the help you need, whether uh, it be through counseling or religion or just, you know, being able to, you know, identify it yourself, man, and, you know, be strong enough to say, okay, well, you know, I need to change this. You know, I need to figure out this isn't working and what can I do to not only change myself, but, you know, help change other people uh, that I understand what they're going through. So for me, uh, that song just, you know, speaks volumes to it all begins with self. Baby, I went to court. This wind is blowing.